in the Skeptic Suite. Um, this is the, the fifth year running. We have uh, arranged Skeptic Suite uh, by Ptolemy Christus Lebsang. For those of you expecting Andy Bannister and his talk on objective morality without God, um, I'm sorry because his trip has been cancelled due to bad weather conditions in Scotland. But we are very uh, happy to have uh, Peter replacing that talk with a talk on archaeology and the Bible. So the point is, the Bible makes itself subject to falsification by, men, by making a lot of historical points and descriptions. And by new archaeological findings, we were able to test this and see how well it fit with history. And that is uh, an interesting topic that uh, the field will carry us through. So, without further ado, I think you can yeah. continue. Grand, thank you very much. Um, I am not an archaeologist. This is just an interest and hobby of mine. My background is in philosophy, and that's why I was doing things... Uh, earlier this week, like having a debate on the existence of God and uh, talking about the problem of evil and those kind of subjects where my academic training is. Uh, but as a Christian who's interested in uh, truth and evidence and those kind of things, uh, this is a, a subject that has long fascinated me. And I'm uh, going to show you uh, lots of pictures of various discoveries. And you'll note that I quote quite often from the archaeologists uh, involved in those discoveries. And I'm not just like going to quote from, I don't know, some fundamentalist Christian archaeologist from uh, Joe Bloggs Baptist University in America or whatever and present what they think about things. I, I'll quote from uh, Israeli Jewish archaeologists and from secular archaeologists. And uh, uh, I would just encourage you, if you're uh, interested or sceptical about some of the finds, uh, just to go to some standard textbooks or look these things up online, uh, because uh, it, it's certainly not my intention to uh, present a sort of view of these things that's biased by the Christianity uh, of those who might present it to you. I think these are things that secular historians and archaeologists, Jewish historians and archaeologists will agree upon even though uh, they don't have a bias towards wanting to support uh, the, new, the, the so-called New Testament part of the Bible that I'm going to focus on uh, in this talk. It's important to, to note as we start out that we have only a very limited access to the past through the, the known chain of its effects in the present. So just to illustrate this, out of thir uh, only 35 out of 142 books written by the Roman historian Livy, uh, and there are his dates, only 35 of those 142 books have survived to the present day. And they've survived in the form of about 20 manuscripts, the oldest of which dates from the 4th century, and he was writing uh, in you know, 50, 60 BC to sort of 17 AD. And then you've got a several centuries gap where we have the earliest manuscript copy of what he wrote, and we've got about 20 of them. When you look uh, at New Testament Gospels, for example, you will find that we have many more manuscripts than for any other ancient document, and that the gap between when the original was written and the copies that we're using to work out what was in the original uh, is a, a much smaller gap. 
it's a gap of say 250, 300 years for complete copies of books and little manuscript fragments go back uh, even to sort of uh, 125 AD uh, and there's a, a controversial uh, find at the moment that scholars are still debating of a fragment of Mark's gospel uh, that may go back as early as the first century uh, but that's not been sort of peer-reviewed uh, published yet so take that with a grain of salt but this is an area where uh, people keep digging up new things and every now and again I, I go back to the, the journals and uh, the, the websites that report these things and find out what new things have been dug up. Only uh, four and a half of Tacitus's 14 books of Roman history have survived in two manuscripts that date to the 9th and the 11th century but this is the kind of historical material that uh, classical historians will happily use to reconstruct our knowledge of the past. So as the atheist uh, Victor Stenger noted, um, absence of evidence, failure to have evidence of something in the past, it's only an evidence of its absence, only that, that absence of present day evidence only should make you sceptical about a claim about the past when the evidence should be there and it's not. If we would expect to see evidence surviving today of that claim and we don't, then it might make you sceptical about that claim that you read in a, in a document. But otherwise, you basically you have to follow the rule of you go with the evidence that you have uh, until you have reason uh, to doubt it. You don't have to have uh, an independent corroboration or verification of something that Livy or Tacitus says in their history in order for you to think yeah that's that's a reason to believe that that really happened just because or I haven't dug up something or, uh, or you know I haven't got um, I haven't got five authors all saying the same thing you know maybe it's enough that I've got two um, only in those cases where you would expect to find evidence today that we're lacking does that lack of present-day evidence give you reason for scepticism about something in the past? Today, people make what I think are a lot of uninformed claims about Jesus or ideas about Jesus that are shaped by uh, reading a website put up by someone who has no more professional expertise in this matter than I do, at the very least. Uh, and people pick up ideas from folks like Richard Dawkins and Richard Stenger like the Gospels are just works of fiction, they're just fairy tales, Jesus probably didn't even exist. Uh, the idea that Jesus was a divine figure was uh, a sort of radical new invention of uh, Christians at the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. That's a claim that Dan Brown makes in his famous novel, The Da Vinci Code. And a lot of people uh, believe that. Uh, and these claims are wrong, and you can show that they're wrong just from the archaeology. So uh, I'm going to look at places and people and cultural beliefs. Uh, I'm taking some slides from bigger talks. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about uh, fulfilled prophecy, but that's another uh, interesting area of uh, thinking uh, about uh, the Bible that we uh, could go into but don't have time to. So here's a sort of general argument uh, to put a, a context behind all the finds that we're going to look at. Uh, philosopher Lydia McGrew uh, gives this sort of analogy. She says, if you sample a loaf of bread on both ends and several points in the middle 
and you find that it's good, it's edible, uh, it, it would be being, it would be curvailing, it would be being far too sceptical to say that perhaps just the parts you haven't tasted happened to be the mouldy ones. If you sample the bread and, it, and it's edible in lots, lots of the, all the places you've sampled it, then what you should think is probably this is not a mouldy loaf of bread. It's a bit like that with, with the, the, the New Testament. When the New Testament makes claims, if in those instances where we're able to independently test it by archaeology, if archaeology says, oh yes, actually, the Gospel writers, the New Testament letter writers and so on, knew what they were talking about in these instances, that should at least increase your confidence that they probably knew that what they were talking about, historically speaking, even in those cases where you're not able to independently test what they say. Because you've tested them enough to build up some confidence that these are generally reliable reporters. Now that's not going to deal with issues like, you know, are you sceptical about when they, when they report that a miracle happened? But all ancient literature reports miracles. You know, Roman historians will report that the emperor did a miracle or whatever. Um, we have to deal with that issue uh, in and of itself, but just because ancient reports and documents and histories report miracles, and you might be sceptical or I might be sceptical of particular miracle claims, doesn't mean you then write off the whole thing and say, oh, we can't, we can't know anything about ancient history. Um, what you say is that at least in, in these sort of claims about uh, normal everyday things, we've tested them, they've proved reliable, here they say something else about a normal everyday thing. They're probably right about that. That's what I should think until I've got reason to be sceptical. So let's uh, take a sampling through the, the loaf of bread that is the New Testament, as it were. Let's start by looking at historical places that the authors mention. Uh, particular cities, even particular buildings, maybe. Bethlehem. Uh, in the, in the Gospels, uh, stories of uh, Luke and Matthew, it gives the birth accounts of Jesus, and they both say that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And for a, a number of years, um, skeptics of various sort of kinds uh, argued that we have no independent evidence that Bethlehem existed as a, a place back in the first century. And they would say, look, it's not mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus. We can't find any record of it. Um, this is probably just made up. See, they're making that mistake of turning an absence of evidence into evidence of absence. And, and the problem with making that kind of argument is when the archaeologists come along and then they dig up something. In this case, this is a very large picture of a very small sort of thumb-sized seal impression. Uh, like you have a, uh, if you have wax on a letter and then you have a signet ring and you put your, your seal on it. Uh, this is a, uh, a clay seal impression of a bill of goods uh, saying that someone was sending uh, uh, some, some goods from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem and on this seal it clearly says the word Bethlehem. So um, this is a Jewish historian here, Eli Sukron. Uh, saying we can, we, here we can read the word Bethlehem in a clear Hebrew inscription of the first temple period on a bula, one of these clay impressions found in, in Israel. 
uh, about paying taxes on goods being sent to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, this is the Bethlehem next to Jerusalem referred to in the Bible. So there is archaeological evidence of the first century existence of Bethlehem. Uh, Jesus' uh, family, although he was born in Bethlehem, didn't come from Bethlehem, came from uh, Na- Nazareth, and he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And again, some skeptics uh, questioned whether this town existed in Jesus' day. Um, and uh, there were some earlier small finds, uh, but a particularly important find in 2010, when archaeologists in Nazareth dug up some, some first century homes uh, from uh, Nazareth. And again, a quote from the uh, director of the archaeological dig here um, reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of of Nazareth uh, at the time of Jesus. Uh, Capernaum is a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee that's mentioned quite a lot by the Gospel writers because Jesus kind of used it as a base of operations. Uh, One of his disciples called Peter and his mother-in-law lived in Capernaum and uh, let them use her house as a, as a base to go out on their sort of preaching tours and so on. And uh, particularly in, in Capernaum, there's a whole, you can go and visit the whole uh, first century town is, is preserved, um, but there's, you know, people build on top of other things and so you have later things built on earlier things. The synagogue in Capernaum is mentioned in several biblical stories. Uh, This is the synagogue in in Capernaum, but this is not the first century one. This is a later one, but it's been built upon the foundations. You can see the black basalt stone foundations here, different colour stone than the the later synagogue. These are very likely to be the the first century foundations of the synagogue in Capernaum that's mentioned uh, in the Gospels. And talking of Peter's mother-in-law's house, uh, here is uh, what is generally thought to be Peter's house in Capernaum. And it's thought to be that because uh, there's the remains of a very early uh, church built around this house. And one of the rooms in that house had been sort of plastered uh, and uh, scratched into the plaster work are various prayers uh, mentioning Jesus, you know, praying to God in Jesus' name uh, and so on. And there was this very early uh, church there and there's a a witness from the um, uh, Constantine's mother in the 4th century who went on a pilgrimage to to Israel and she mentions uh, in her diaries that in Capernaum the house of of Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, has been made into a church with its original walls still standing. And indeed you can see inside here this is like this is the fifth century church and this is the room of the house that the church has been built around uh, preserved inside it and then this there's today there's this strange sort of concrete structure that looks a bit like a ufo that the catholic church has built over it that's got glass floors and you can go up into this viewing deck and look down into the the archaeological dig site pool of bethesda mentioned in the John's Gospel, chapter 5, and it describes in quite a detail uh, a particular pool in Jerusalem, which again was lost to us until the 19th century when some archaeologists came across it. And in the 19th century, German uh, liberal sceptical scholars used to say, this pool of Bethesda, it must be made up. And, and we know this uh, because uh, 
It is uh, described as being uh, surrounded by these uh, five colonnades, and we think that has a, uh, a sort of mystical significance. And it's talking about the five books of the Pentateuch, of the books of Moses in the Old Testament. And so it must be some sort of metaphorical analogy. For, and it's not real. It's not talking about history because of this five colonnades and so on. And then in the 19th century, the archaeologists come along, they dig up, this, this pool in Jerusalem that has it in the place where John's Gospel says it should be, and it has five colonnades. It's like that was a detailed, accurate historical description of what's actually been dug up. Likewise, another a ceremonial washing pool mentioned by the Gospels in Jerusalem is the Pool of Siloam in John 9. And in 2004, uh, they were digging up a water main and they stumbled across these steps. And of course, uh, as often happens in Jerusalem, you stumble across something and they had to stop doing the diggers and get the archaeologists in to see if they found anything important. And they keep, keep unearthing it and they find all of these steps that go down around the, like the, the sides of a pool that you walk down in, into the, the pool for ceremonial washing. And again, in the place... Uh, where uh, John's Gospel dis describes it. Uh, and there's even still some running water uh, at the bottom of it from the water that came into this pool. Uh, there's the steps again, and, and some of the, the artefacts that were used for dating it, because you get down to the certain stratum and you, you find certain kinds of pottery, you find certain coins that were minted at a certain date, and that helps you to date, yeah, this is, this is a first century rather than a second century or first century BC uh, pool or whatever. So that's places. What about uh, people? So let's take one passage from Luke's Gospel. Luke has been uh, called one of the uh, most important, one of the best historians of the ancient world. And here's a passage, particularly famous passage from Luke chapter 3, in which he mentions a lot of people's names and titles and so on in order to very specifically tie down, here is the historical situation that I'm talking about. So it says, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch, that is the governor of a quarter of a province of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Traconitus, and Philip and, uh, um, and so on is mentioned uh, by the Jewish historian Josephus in Jewish Antiquities, uh, and Licinius, who was tetrarch of Albany, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert, then talking about John, John the Baptist. So he's saying, here is the historical situation that I'm talking about. Well, uh, apart from where I've mentioned the, the literary evidence for a couple of the names, all of the numbered names in here are people that we have archaeological evidence for. So, Tiberius Caesar, lots of evidence for him, uh, including the, the coins minted at the time with his, his face on and so on. This is the famous uh, tribute penny from the Gospels where the Jewish authorities asked Jesus, you know, should we pay our taxes to the Romans? And he asks them, well, look at a coin. Whose face is on the coin? Who owns that coin? And they say, oh, Caesar's. Uh, so, and he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. So, give, you know, give the Roman money back to the Romans. Uh, and that's the, the kind of coin that he was talking about. 
Pontius Pilate in the 1960s, they, they found this stone that had been uh, repurposed in an amphitheatre. It was the inscription from the dedication of a temple that Pilate had dedicated to uh, the emperor. And uh, on this uh, stone, we have the words uh, a Tiberium, which is this, this temple to the emperor. emperor. Um, these letters are mit- missing, but uh, Tius Pilatus, uh, and uh, these words are missing because the stone's broken, but an ectus, and it's a very plausible way of reading this uh, to say, well, that's saying Pontius Pilatus, prefectus, prefect of uh, the area. Or Herod the Great, lots of archaeology to do with Herod the Great, one of his coins here, which uh, gives the description of Herod king in the year it was struck. Uh, year three of Herod's reign, so that's 37 BC. Or uh, this bit of pottery uh, from some uh, jug used for wine, uh, and it, it has on it the, the title Herod the Great King of the Jews or King of Judah, and that, that's the, the way that he's referred to in the, in the Gospels, you know, Herod the Great, the Great King of the Jews. And it, here's uh, Herod's sarcophagus uh, that was found a few years ago by an Israeli archaeologist. Uh, Lysinus, one of those tetrarchs that Luke mentions. And again, scholars said, ha ha, we've caught Luke out. Luke didn't know what he was talking about. Everybody knew that Lysinus, well, he wasn't a tetrarch. He was ruler of a place called Calchas half a century earlier than Luke said. We've caught him. He was unreliable. Until uh, we dug up an inscription uh, from the time of Tiberius, uh, which names uh, Licinius as Tetrarch of Albia near Damascus. There were, there were two people with the same name who had governmental jobs <laughs> in, in that uh, sort of period of history, as it were. Uh, so ag- again, uh, people said, thought, ah, oh, Luke's got it wrong, but then the archaeology comes along and says, no, actually, he was right on the money. Caiaphas, uh, the, the high priest, this is his, uh, his burial box, his ossuary. Uh, the Jews would, would, would bury someone, wait for the body to de- decompose, collect the bones together and put the bones into a, an ossuary, a bone box. And they would write on the bone box you know, who, who it was and so on. And if you were rich and powerful, you got a very pretty bone box like this. And if you were poor, you just got a very plain one. Uh, but here is the, the bone box of Caiaphas. On the side of the back of the ossuary, it's inscribed with Caiaphas' his, his name uh, uh, um, because it's his, this is actually, yeah, no, this is his son, this is Joseph, Joseph Bar, that is son of Joseph Bar Caiaphas, Caiaphas, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, so it, it mentions Caiaphas. Um, so, uh, my patination has gone off a bit there, but uh, a few years ago, 2011, um, this isn't certain. But I think this is quite plausible. Um, Archaeologists reckon that they found some of the remnants of uh, John the Baptist. And it's like, oh yeah, lots of places claim to have bits of the body of John the Baptist, you know. If you put them all together, you've probably got like about three skulls and four arms and all of the places. Oh, our church has got a bit of John the Baptist. So you're always sceptical about that kind of claim. Uh, But... uh, the, uh, the archaeological team uncovered this, this reliquary box uh, uh, bearing um, a number of bone pieces 
uh, some of which turned out not even to be human, but there were some human bone bits in there that someone had padded out the collection at some stage, I think, um, attributed to John the Baptist. It, the thing is that this reliquary was found, it was found embedded in an altar in the ruins of a monastery on uh, a small island in the Black Sea uh, in Bulgaria uh, that's basically it's called John's Island and it was like John's monastery on John's Island and in the uh, the altar of this uh, they found this bone box and there was another box in the in the altar embedded in the altar with an inscription on it and that that uh, uh, Greek inscription uh, read God save your servant Thomas to St John June 24th and that's the date of the religious feast of St. John the Baptist. Uh, so the fact that it, uh, and they can kind of trace it, this, this back a long way, the fact that it's mentioning uh, St. John, uh, his feast day in the altar of St. John's monastery in St. John's Island, uh, that sort of bodes well. But then uh, they uh, got the uh, Oxford University to do carbon dating on the bones to see, well, are they from the right kind of historical period? Uh, and the research team uh, dated the uh, right-hand knuckle uh, to the middle of the first century, um, which is, yeah, right, kind of in the right uh, uh, place when John's believed to have lived until he was beheaded uh, by King Herod. So that adds to the plausibility. Uh, a lot of these kind of fake claims of, oh yes, we've got the, the left thigh bone of St. John the Watset, you know, you probably find out, yeah, it's a, it's a horse's bone and they've just, or it's just, they've dug up someone from the local cemetery and say, hey, we can make a bit of money out of the pilgrims, you know. Um, but this actually does date to the, the right kind of, of time. But it's plausible, but it's not certain. This is, however, much more plausible and much more uh, significant as well. Here is another of those bone boxes, Osiris, with three additional names on it. Uh, Hebrew reads from right to left. So reading from light, right to left, left, it's Jacob by Yosef Achud Yeshua, which in English is James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. The bone box is dated to the uh, middle of the first century. Uh, James, we know from Josephus, was martyred in AD 62, uh, which was uh, 29 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, so since he was executed then and then he would have been buried and then reburied, this would date the box to about AD you know, 63, 64, something like that. A 2014 peer-reviewed paper in the Open Journal of Geology uh, supported the authenticity of this find. There was a lot of controversy over it when it was first noticed because it was one of those items that was already in a collector's collection. It wasn't something that the archaeologists dug up in situ in a, in a, in a dig. It's something that had been dug up, a collector had bought it, apparently not knowing its significance, and then a visitor to this uh, collector's shop sort of noticed it, and he, he could read Hebrew, and he kind of went, hey, that's a, that's a bit interesting. Do you, do you know what this is? Uh, and so there was questions. Because it wasn't dug up, that raises the possibility that it's a fraud, that someone's pretending that they found something, and so it was very controversial. 
Uh, there was even a whole court case that you can look up online uh, uh, where the Israeli Antiquities Authority took the, uh, the collector to court accusing him of fraud. Um, that took a number of years to work its way uh, through the system, that court case, but uh, basically it ended up vindicating him. Uh, the case collapsed uh, against him and uh, further peer-reviewed scientific uh, looking at this bone box has supported its uh, authenticity, not only the, uh, the ancientness and age of the box, but particularly looking at the inscription and questions like, maybe someone found an old bone box that said, uh, James, son of Joseph. And then they added on the words, brother of Jesus, to kind of sex up the bone box, as it were. Um, but uh, as I say, you can, you can look up this uh, peer-reviewed journal uh, article from the Open Journal of Geology that supported it and uh, looked at things like the, the, the patina, the growth uh, of accumulation of signs of age on the box over the years and showing that that was inside the grooves of all of the, the letters, that certain striations of, of marks that had been um, you know, at knocks and so on over the years on the box, that some of those striation marks went through uh, the lettering of the controversial bit and were from the same age, so the, the inscription couldn't have been added to later and so on. The, the, the article to look up is the authenticity of the James Ossery in the Open Journal of Geology from 2014 by uh, Amon Rosenfield et al. And um, this is just a clip of the, the abstract page and so on from the scientific research website where you can look it up uh, online and, uh, if you want to go into the details here. But it, it really does seem like the science is bearing out that this really is an Ossery of James, the brother of Jesus. Um, now you could say, well, well, quite a lot of people were called James and quite a lot of people were called Jesus back then and quite a lot of people maybe had a father called Joseph. So is this necessarily the James and Joseph and, and Jesus of the Bible, even though it's from the right historical date in the right historical location? And getting all three of those names together would be quite unlikely. And the usual form of, of putting your name on the box, you wouldn't normally write brother of so-and-so unless there was something particularly significant and well-known about your brother. It, it was usual just to say so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Um, so that also uh, indicates that it's plausible to think that, that probably is who it's talking about. So Herschel Shanks, who was the editor of um, Biblical Archaeology Review magazine, uh, comments that this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, than not. It's likely this inscription does mention the James and the Joseph and Jesus of the New Testament. But as with much of history and archaeology, it's not 100% certain. You have to go by the probabilities, but it does seem like the probabilities is that this is uh, archaeological evidence from the middle of the first century of... James, who was a brother of Jesus, and they were sons of Joseph. Finally, let's uh, have a brief look at, at cultural uh, beliefs. I'm just going to fold this in under that because it's a long-standing tradition that believes that Jesus was buried uh, in the site that's now marked by the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
And recently, uh, National Geographic magazine were involved in a sort of uh, revamp restoration of this site where they've, uh, it goes back so long, they have like, they marked the site, they built a little church over the place where the tomb was meant to be, and then someone else came along and built a bigger church. So you kind of, it's like a, one of those Russian dolls where you have a church inside a church inside a church, and each one is older than the one before. Uh, Dan Bahat, Jewish archaeologist, city archaeologist of Jerusalem, he again says, we may not be absolutely certain that the site is the site of Jesus' burial, but there's no other site that has a better claim or has a better uh, claim to authenticity than this site, a long tradition uh, stretching back with it. And as part of the, uh, the restoration work, um, the place where the, the shelf in the tomb that you would have laid the dead body when you put, put it to rest there had been uh, covered over by a big marble slab. And you, you couldn't question, well, you know, I don't know, someone in the third century or whatever built this sort of little church over this site and said, yeah, there's a tomb under here. Well, they could, again, were they just making it up or whatever? But uh, the marble slab was, was broken and they've, they've taken it away to restore it. And underneath that, that marble slab from the original church is indeed a, a, uh, a rock shelf uh, uh, that beneath that marble slab uh, like in a first century tomb. So, you know, at the very least you can say this, that the descriptions of the gospel of burying Jesus uh, in this kind of a tomb where they, you know, they wrap the body and they lay the, the body in the, in, in the tomb, um, that is the kind of tombs that they had at the time and this tomb is in the right kind of geographical location uh, of, uh, according to the Gospels, where Jesus was buried. It's got a long tradition associated with it, and there's no other place in Jerusalem that has uh, a better uh, claim to it. So that's plausible to think that. Some people have said, ah, but because Jesus was crucified as a, a criminal, he wouldn't have been given a decent burial like that. He would have just been thrown into a, a common sort of pauper's grave pit or something. They wouldn't have buried a crucified person. Here's the archaeological remains of Yohanan, discovered in the 1960s. And here's his bone box with his name on it and so on. Here is his ankle bone with the nail driven through it from his crucifixion. Um, so here's archaeological proof that even though you got yourself crucified as a criminal, uh, you could indeed uh, be given an honourable burial as a, according to the Old Testament laws and Deuteronomy and so on. Uh, you should be, and uh, certainly during peacetime, it, it seems you know the Romans respected those local customs and allowed Jews to to bury their dead in the the biblical way. So Jesus, likewise, certainly could have been given a, a an honourable uh, burial like the Gospels describe. This one's interesting because it's a, a decree um, from about AD 40, 40s, early 40s. Uh, from the Emperor Claudius, and it, it's basically a decree upping the, uh, the criminal punishment for robbing bodies out of graves, uh, saying it's now going to be a capital offence if anyone steals a body out of a tomb. Uh, and that's particularly interesting because not only is this from the, the 40s AD, remember the claims about Jesus' resurrection and finding his tomb empty and so on come from AD 33, but this was found uh, in uh, Nazareth uh, in the 19th century. It was uncovered in, in Nazareth. 
and that means it might well be plausible to think that the Emperor Claudius had heard about the Christian claims about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and he thought well you know probably what happened is some people nicked the body out of the tomb and the disciples went to the tomb and said oh, there's no body here Jesus must have risen from the dead and this this terrible rumor spread I'll put an end to that that, that kind of thing uh, happening again I really frown upon the Christian religion and those kind of claims we don't want uh, the Jews, Jews bigging up some sort of claim to a messiah who might uh, revolt against Rome uh, let's uh, increase the punishment for for grave robbery I mentioned Dan Brown claim and uh, uh, this will be the last uh, section Dan Brown uh, claims in his book the Da Vinci Code that uh, nobody thought that Jesus was divine or the son of God he was just a mortal prophet until they had a vote at the Council of Nicaea and then they said hey let's all let's all vote to decide that we'll think Jesus is divine and they do that by a majority vote okay uh, so the Council of Nicaea was a, a church uh, meeting uh, about working out some church doctrine and so on in uh, 325 AD in the fourth century uh, this is the third century church at Dura Europos in Syria and it, it's very interesting because there's a, a baptistry down here that on the walls of the baptistry has these wonderful wall paintings and these are very interesting wall paintings so here for example we have the clean-shaven figure of a sort of Roman togged figure with his arm outstretched over a man who's lying on a bed and here is a man carrying his bed and if you have uh, read a few Gospels this immediately brings to mind a story in which uh, Jesus is depicted as having healed a lame man who was delivered to him by his friends lying on a, a bed probably like a mattress roll <laughs> actually they've taken this a bit too literally in their own cultural context and then Jesus uh, says uh, your sins are forgiven and they're all like hang on we didn't we didn't come for sin forgiving we want you to to heal him uh, and all the uh, the Jewish authorities are like you can't claim to forgive someone it's only you can't claim to forgive someone who hasn't sinned against you the only person who could do that would be like God who do you think you are and then Jesus says well which is easier just to say to someone your sins are forgiven or to say to someone who's paralyzed get up and walk pick up your bed and walk and then he performs this miracle as recorded now I, I'm not presenting this as evidence that Jesus did a miracle okay what this is I think is evidence that people in the third century thought that Jesus did this miracle and it was significant enough to portray in a painting and note that the the significant thing about that miracle is that it's one that involves is tied up with Jesus claiming to be on a par with God because he claims to be able to forgive sins so this is an indication that in the third century at least some people thought that Jesus claimed to be like God to be, the, to be able to forgive sins uh, and uh, you know since this is in a baptistry in a church you know they probably believe that themselves that he was right about that uh, there's the, the story from uh, you can look it up in Mark chapter 2 uh, or there's this picture it's broken but you can see there's a, a boat with various people on it and then there's the, the water 
and there's two people sort of just standing on the water. And indeed, one of them is clearly standing on the water, uh, and this one seems to be sinking up to about down to his knees uh, in the water. And it's the story of Peter getting out of the boat and going towards Jesus when Jesus is walking on the water. Again, um, you may think, well, that probably didn't happen because that's a miracle. That's a whole other issue. But the Gospels record this story, and again, a, a significant thing about this story is you can take it as making a claim that Jesus is on a par with God. Because in the Old Testament, there's a description in the book of Job talking about God that says he alone, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Um, so whether or not the event happened, what's being communicated by the story is the idea, oh, look, oh, Jesus who is he like? He's, he's like God. He's walking on the water. He's God. Um, if it was a miracle that happened, that was Jesus making that claim in a symbolic way. If it didn't happen, it was people making that claim about Jesus in a symbolic way. And here in the third century are people drawing this picture of this story, the significance of which points to the idea that Jesus is God. Or right over the baptismal pool is this picture you can maybe just work out this is the head and the ears of a sheep being carried here's the head of a man being carried by a shepherd and a picture of sheep around here and of course it's a typical old testament uh picture or analogy of god say so god is the shepherd of israel israel is his flock and he is their shepherd and here in a christian church in a baptistry is a picture of a shepherd carrying his sheep. We know from the Gospels that Jesus himself claimed, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep. And that's, a, so that's from John, just one instance, and his one instance from the Old Testament, from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And then Jesus comes along and says, yes, I am your shepherd. Again, who does he think he is? Who do these people who paint this painting think Jesus is? They think he's God. They think he's the Lord. This is a, a wall sort of bit of graffiti uh, scratched into a wall in Rome. Uh, I've seen a range of dates from this. Uh, here's Richard Bockham, a New Testament scholar, who says it dates to about 200. But it's, it's like second, third century. Uh, and you see here, um, there's a, a cross with a human figure on it with a, the head of a donkey. And there's a man looking up at the figure on the cross with, a, with an arm raised up. And the, the, the lettering here uh, in Latin says, Alex Aminos worships his God. Or, Alex Aminos, worship your God. What an idiot Alex Aminos is. He worships this complete fool who, who made such an ass of himself that he got himself crucified. And who on earth would worship a crucified dude? Ha, 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 silly Aximinos. Okay, that's what this is saying. But, you know, who in that sort of historical period might a Roman worship, that's what you do with a deity, treat as a deity, whom is known to have been crucified? <laughs> I can't think of a long list of candidates. This is clearly 
picture of a, a Christian worshipping Jesus and someone making fun of them for doing that because it's so stupid to think that you would worship someone who was crucified. Uh, and indeed, it, that was a stupid thing to think at the time unless you had really good reason to think that someone who was crucified was worth worshipping. Um, so again, uh, I'm not claiming that this, this proves anything about who Jesus was, but I think it does prove something about who at least some people thought Jesus was at the time. This is about 200 AD. And finally, this is from uh, about 230 AD, so again, the beginning of the 3rd century, a Christian prayer hall that was stumbled across. They were going to extend a prison uh, in Megiddo, and they started digging the foundations for the new prison block, and they stumbled over this mosaic on the floor, and they uncovered this uh, early Christian church, basically. Uh, here's a sort of reconstruction where you have a, a table for the communion, uh, for mass in the middle, and it's surrounded by some lovely mosaics. And here's a top-down picture of the mosaics. Here's an enlargement, a bit fuzzy. This, you can see the enlargement of this area here, is a picture of a couple of fish, uh, which were uh, used by early Christians as a, as a symbol of belief in Jesus as Lord, because the, the Greek word for fish is, is ichthus, and they used that as a, an acrostic. Each letter of that word stood for something. So in the Greek, ichthus stood for Jesus Christos Theos Eos Soter. That is, in English, Jesus Christ, Messiah, God's Son, Saviour. And the fish symbol is found all over the place uh, in ancient archaeological digs from this era. So I think that is an indication of people's beliefs about Jesus, particularly given the context that this is found in. But here is the really really interesting piece this over here here's an enlargement Greek inscription and it's talking about the person who paid the, the money to have the communion table made um, and it says this it says the God loving Akeptus has offered the table to God Jesus Christ and uh, unlike us, we, we underline important things. The Greeks would overline important things. And you can see here, overlined is the phrase, God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. So from about 230 AD, again, dated from the pottery and the coins and all of those, those things, uh, archaeological inscription saying that at least some people back then thought that Jesus was God. And then, so that's about a uh, you know, hundred years before uh, the Council of Nicaea. So uh, Dan Brown is wrong. Uh, I think you can show from the, just the archaeology uh, that at least by the second century, in the beginning of the second century, there were groups of people in various places and that was from Israel, we saw one from, from Rome, um, Syria, large geographical spread of, of Christians who thought of Jesus as divine, as God, as the Lord, as on a par with the God of Abraham and so on. Uh, so uh, clearly uh, there were people who thought that then. You could then pursue the question of why did they think that, where did they get that idea from? Um, 
trace that back further. But to trace that back further, I think you have to go to literary sources. Uh, we don't have earlier archaeological uh, evidence for those things. Uh, we then start talking about literary uh, evidence, and that's outside the remit of a talk on biblical archaeology. So I will, I will stop there and uh, open the floor to your questions. If you have any. Or you can come up and talk to me one-on-one afterwards if you like. Yeah, Lee. Uh, so I heard on the Ossuary of James yeah. that there is uh, paleographic evidence that they are actually to, uh, that the Yeshua is added later. Right, that was a, uh, the paleographic means that the writing hand style. There are there two writing hand styles on there? And that was a question that was gone into in the, in the trial. The, the thing was, and it, and it, it, one of the things that happens in archaeology in Israel is it gets all bound up with politics quite often. And it also gets bound up with, as I say, this possibility that occasionally people do try and make money by producing frauds when you, you come across things that people didn't recognise the significance of the time it was dug up whenever that was and someone's bought it into their private collection and you haven't got you know, a record of what they may have done to it in the meantime as with stuff that's dug up by an archaeological team and, and, and so on. So it certainly raises that question and that accusation I think was put during the, the trial of the, of the collector where they put him on trial for fraud. Uh, and again you can, you can look this up in various places. What basically happened in the trial is that all of the, um, the um, expert witnesses that the government called to for the prosecuting case um, ended up either abandoning the, the claims that they had had, had issued <coughs> supporting the idea that it was a fraud or actually ended up giving evidence that showed the opposite, that it was genuine. <laughs> uh, and as I say, if you read that, uh, that journal uh, article about the patina um, uh, and the, the, the scratches on it and also it talks about little micro fossils uh, that are in the in the stone and so on, and so you can, uh, you can. Uh, they they argue, I think, very strongly that that all of the lettering is of the same age. Um, so I think that would show that it's implausible to think that it's a modern day fraud, fraud where someone's taken a box, old box, and written on it, or an old box with a with a, an inscription on it, and then added to it in you know more modern times. Whether or not the original, taking it as a first century ossuary, you know, someone in the family was bearing the, bone, the bones and put on it, you know, Jesus, son of Joseph, and then one of the other, one of Jesus' other brothers or one of the disciples said, oh, oh, this is, you know, this is James, the brother of Jesus, we should add, you know, <laughs> here, give me the <laughs> entirely possible... <laughs> Uh, that, it, that it's two hands, but I, I, I'm not actually aware that there's any evidence that it is two hands, and, and even if it is, it's, it's not like it could be a modern, modern edition that someone made in the 19th, 20th century to, to make it into a forgery that they could make money out of. And the collector wasn't making money out of it, he sat in his shop for years, <laughs> and, and he just like, oh, it's just another one of those bone boxes, they're dime a dozen. Um, he, he was a Jew and he, he, didn't, he didn't really pay 
the attention to that combination of names because that's like a, a Christian thing to think is significant. You know? Yeah. Can we just take a quick um, mm -hmm. information about things for yeah, before, sure. we take, before we take some more questions? <coughs> because, um, yeah, later today we will have uh, a really Christian event uh, at 2 at Bravo. And tomorrow there's going to be a cooperation with with the community dining. Um, and then tomorrow that's going to be really interesting. So we'll check it out, uh, sketches about Jonah on Facebook for more information. And yeah, take, uh, take some more questions and ask either if you want. Okay, yeah. Any, any questions before? I mean, I'm happy to talk one-on-one -on -one afterwards for a bit if you want, but uh, no. Oh, look at this. Yeah. Ah, uh, thank you. I just want to say thank you for coming to Norway. Thank you for nice. Stepping in when we had a crisis. <laughs> um, this chocolate is called Good Wishes. Aha. Uh -huh. So here is some good, good wishes. Good <laughs> Thank you very much. That's lovely. It's, it's been lovely being here. I've enjoyed giving the talks and interacting and meeting people and uh, taking people's questions and so on. So that's good. Um, if, the, if I only can, let me just give a word of summary of what I think this, this stuff means. Uh, this in and of itself is clearly not enough to make you have to think, yeah, Jesus is the divine son of God who died and rose again for my sins. Okay? It doesn't show that. But what I think it, it does show is that the, the, the authors of the Gospels uh, really were talking about historical things and when they just in a sort of offhanded way mention a place or a person or a rank that someone held or a particular building, um, where archaeology has been able to test that, it's shown that they're reliable. And that should at least increase your confidence <coughs> that they may be reliable when they're talking about other, other things. Although, as I said, there's going to be a special case when it comes to talking about miracles. Yeah. Uh, I know more about like, Norse history than I do about the Bible. Mm. I know that in the, uh, the Norse sagas, you have some cases that have happened recently, but then there was a story where they, um, they, uh, the sagas had said that they had killed a man and pushed him down a well. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, the scientists would say, you know, this problem didn't happen. Yeah. And then they found the skeleton down, down the well. well. Wow. The fact that this happened doesn't mean that all the other things in those sagas are considered true. A lot of things that are written in like the Bible, in the mm. sagas, are still not proven. Like proving one thing doesn't prove another. And mm -hmm. like you mentioned all the names. Mm. And that's like it's the, the way they dated stuff. Like you would say, Oh, this happened in the year this yeah. person was consul. That's how you would put a year on things. You didn't have a a mm, year mm, system mm. other than uh, the fifth year in this person's reign. Yeah, yeah. So mentioning a lot of names, yeah, of course they would, because they would say this is that that would be the the way of telling the time. But right. that doesn't necessarily prove anything else from those texts. Yeah. I, I would say what it shows is is a I, I think it does show a historical intent. They're saying I, I I'm wanting to talk about some something historical. Here's a dating. Of, of when this happened. And that, that contrasts, say, with the so-called Gnostic 
Gospels from the second, third century onwards uh, that don't tend to mention names of places, particular geographical locations, ranks of people, these kind of historical details, because uh, they don't have any sort of serious his historical intent. And although it, it's true to say just because you prove that an author is right about one thing doesn't, doesn't prove that they must be right about everything else, certainly doesn't prove that they must be right about other things that you think you have independent reason to be sceptical about, like, say, miracles or that Jesus was divine. Okay? But I, I do think the argument holds that you can make an inference from, I've tested what this source, historical source, says in a lot of instances where I can test it, and it's proven to be reliable when it does make one of these references to something being real in a certain location, having a certain title, having a certain name, etc. Um, that, I think, should, by an inferential argument, increase my confidence that they are uh, intending and being able to reliably communicate information about the time period and so on that they're, that they're talking about. So I think that does extend to things that you can't independently test. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's important to note it, you, you, you couldn't really do, say, classical history and so on, Roman history, Greek history, if you had the rule, you know, okay, Tacitus says this and Josephus agrees with him, but I'm not going to believe what these textual sources say because there's not independent archaeological verification that they're right about that, even though there is independent archaeological ev evidence that they, they were both right about this and that and that and that and that, um, then I think you would be in, in uh, too sceptical frame of mind um, uh, that would make doing ancient history uh, very hard, if, if not impossible. Uh, so if you're, I think if you're applying the same kind of rules of evidence to the Gospels, as just as these are first century writings, like Josephus's Antiquities or Jewish Wars or whatever, um, then this information uh, would make you more confident in their reliability than you would be if you didn't know this information. But let's leave it there. And, and it certainly, I think, shows it undermines some of the widespread kind of myths about these documents. It undermines the myth that, oh, they're just, they're late fairy tales that don't have any connection to history. They're just about theology. Or, um, you know, people only began thinking that Jesus was divine in, in the fourth century. Or, um, the, you know, um, that kind of uh, uh, thing that I quoted from various atheists at the beginning or people who have said, oh yeah, the Bible says Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but you know, because we haven't got any archaeological evidence, it probably didn't exist and it was wrong, or Luke was wrong about this tetrarch in this place because we've got this, this same name in another place, and then you dig up the right name in the right place, and so on. So it, it un it, this information undermines those kind of uh, mythical claims uh, about the Gospels. But as I say, it doesn't prove it all, it doesn't go to prove that Christianity is true, but I think it does go to show that it's worth taking more seriously as a set of historical information than many sort of 
uh, atheist writers and internet skeptics and so on will take it. Is that, that fair? Yeah, come back. Do. Uh, well, I think we can agree that Dan Brown writes fiction and not history. Yeah. Uh, although, although he does, he does claim at the beginning of, of, of the novel that all of the um, historical descriptions of documents and uh, and yeah, paintings and so on are, are accurate. Uh, however, like the, the meeting in Nikea, they mm. did debate the divinity of Jesus. It wasn't like they did discuss the matter. You, you showed that, yeah, people did see him as God mm. before this, but there were like there were disagreements. Yes, but the there were disagreements after as well. Yeah, that, that's true, but there were disagreements about how to theologically express belief, the agreed belief in Jesus' divinity. There, there wasn't a discussion about, you know, some of us think Jesus is divine and some of us don't. Yeah, still, they didn't, they didn't agree about all the details. No, right, no. yeah, they, they didn't agree about the, the theological details of the doctrine of, of exactly what kind of divinity do we ascribe to Jesus and in his relationship to God the Father as we're beginning to work out the doctrine of the Trinity. But what, um, what people like Dan Brown make it, make it sound like is because they debated the divinity of Jesus at the Council of Nicaea, what they were debating was, you know, should we officially think of him as divine or not? <laughs> or, or that some Christians thought that and some didn't and then they had a a discussion and a vote, and the ones who thought that he was divine won. It, it, it was more like the ones who thought there was a specific way of thinking about his divinity were the ones who won that, that discussion. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a broader picture than that. Um, but yeah.